If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. If you do not have your Bible, it will be behind me on the screen. Um, And so we're going through Isaiah, as everyone knows, and so far, I mean, I've been enjoying Isaiah. I don't know if any of you have, but it's been fun for me. Um, There's a lot there. There's a lot that actually says, uh, speaks volumes to our own society here and now. And it's interesting when we consider that, um, just how the prophets were able to speak such truth um, and how that truth translates not just to their own culture, but it translates into even our culture. And I think we're going to see a little bit of that today um, as we go forward. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 6. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And the fi- oh wait, no, hold on, wait, we got maps. Go ahead, let's, <laughs> let's go ahead and put on our maps. Um, that way we can kind of see what's going on. Maybe. No, 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 no. Hold on one second, everybody. We're going to pause this. And luckily, I can go in and edit this video and take all this out. <laughs> all right, let's see what we got. Why is this doing this? Dan broke it. There we go. Hold on. There we go. All right, map one. Hold on. One second. Oh, get back. All right, so map one, even though all of you should have this memorized after months and months. No one does, I know. Um, All right, so we have Assyria here, and we have Babylon. Assyria is the one that's coming over and taking over everything, including the northern kingdom of Israel, um, including Syria, Damascus, Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. Go ahead, Dan, to the next slide. Um, And we see it a little bit more in depth here. Dan, you're just jumping all over the place. Huh. Anyway, so that's what's going on. So I guess open up your Bibles and we'll have Dan try to figure this out as he goes forward. There we go. Israel. Israel and Judah. So right now we remember that Isaiah is right here in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. Um, And right now, I mean, he's looking up at Israel and he sees evil. If anyone's ever read... um, First and second kings, for example, you know how the kings of Israel were very wicked, how they kept on following after Jeroboam, who went ahead and in Samaria and in other places, built up altars to these false gods. Um, so Isaiah is able to look over the border and say, y'all are crazy. Um, and so now you see it's going to happen that he's going to criti- criticize Israel and their leadership and why it is that it's going to happen to them what happens. And then he's also going to look around himself, though, and see, okay, well, it's not just Israel that's a problem. Judah has a problem as well. So now we'll continue on with our next verse, which should be the verses we're going to go over today. All right. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. 
In the day of the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back to the battle at the gate. So chapter 28 begins with a criticism against Ephraim. As we remember, Ephraim was another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. The reason for this is that Ephraim was uh, the largest tribe of the northern kingdom and from whence most of the kings came from that line. That the proud crown is emphasized shows at first a good thing turned ugly. As like a fading flower, so does the glory and beauty fade from Israel. The rich valley likely represents the capital Samaria or Samaria. But it may further represent not only the drunkard leadership, but the whole people. It's not just the crown, but the whole of the people have fallen astray. Isaiah then describes the judgment to come to the northern kingdom. First, we notice it is from God. Second, is the way in which the one who is used by God is described. Mighty and strong, coming quickly like hail or a thunderstorm. Assyria was such as this and was the one God sent to judge the northern kingdom of Israel for their disobedience and faithlessness, ultimately exiling the northern kingdom in 722 AD. The double imagery returns with the crown in the rich valley. In both cases, the destruction which comes from the judgment is fierce. The leadership is destroyed, and the capital city, Samaria, indeed most of the people, are quickly cast aside. This is seen with the first ripe fig which was often larger than the others, and would be quickly devoured. So the people will be quickly overrun. Despite the negative connotations with the judgment, in the end, there will be a shining light. The shining light is God himself, who will be the crown of glory. No longer will it be left on the drunkards and the poor leadership. Those who remain are naturally drawn to the greatness of God and finally see what is truly great. And it is not drunkenness. It's not debauchery. Instead, it is God himself. Whereas we have seen in Isaiah a criticism against injustice, with God's justice as um, at the forefront of his judgment and government. Often we think power is the key to a kingdom, but justice is more emphasized as being the foundation for any kingdom or government. As such, a just king will lead to a just people, And ultimately, the great strength of leadership will lead to strength within the people to stand against oppression, uh, to stand against injustice. Now we come to verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit. With no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear, and the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Scholars debate over the first half of verse 7, 
When Isaiah says, there also, seems to point to the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. Though there is some debate over this, as some hold that Isaiah is still considering the northern kingdom. Still, in my mind, it doesn't really change the point of the message, regardless of which kingdom is in view. What is the point? That the leadership, when skewed, is worthy of chastisement and being critiqued for their folly. That said, we see how the religious leadership also is under their drunken spell. The priests, who were to atone for the people's sins through sacrifice, and the prophets, who were supposed to proclaim God's word, to bring them back to God, back to his law, back to truth, they are both drunk as well as the political leaders. Indeed, they are unable to walk properly and their vision is blurred. If one considers it, how can they lead when they stumble so greatly? How can they proclaim the truth when they themselves are blind? Isaiah's criticism is biting in verse 8, as we see in horror the repercussions of their religious leaders. So drunk, the tables are just full of vomit. Their self-indulgence has shattered the blessings they have received. At this point, most scholars take this to be what Isaiah is being told. Uh, The ESV shows this by putting quotations The religious leaders are not concerned over their self-indulgence. Instead, they mock the prophet Isaiah, even God himself. This can be viewed in one of two ways. The first is that they are saying Isaiah is treating them like children in his chastisement of their self-indulgence. Does he dare critique them as though they were children drinking milk from their mother's breast? The other view could be that they are seriously questioning who else Isaiah would proclaim to if not they. Mere children instead? They are the leaders after all. In either case, there is a sense of mocking from the religious leadership over Isaiah's proclamations. And there's another sense too, where Isaiah's message is simple. And yet they just keep on ignoring it. They keep on mocking it as something not intense enough or not true enough. It comes in force with how little they care for God's commandments. They seem to dismiss God's commands with a shrug and a wave of a hand. It is further seen in the line which is meant uh, was used for measuring. And scholars note the plumb line was utilized to decide if a building could be repaired or must be destroyed. Instead of taking the warnings, they are just shoving it all aside as though it were meaningless. As such, since they have rejected the prophets given to them in their native tongue, God will send others whom they do not understand to speak to his people. This does not mean that they will be hearing someone else speak and understand it. Instead, it means a threat. Foreigners will come teach them what God has been warning about through their destruction. The simplicity of God's message to his people cannot be understated. He has always said, in me you will find rest. It won't be in other nations. It won't be in their lackluster leadership. It won't be in your vision, in your wisdom, or your wealth. But God alone. Yet instead of turning toward God and trusting in him, they continue to spurn his hand. Though they had mocked God previously, God will use their very words against them. The goodness of God and his commandments and his message that they had spurned. Now they will see how they have erred, as they will find judgment and a line, but will do so as prisoners under the yoke of an oppressor. So admittedly, I had a hard time with this because I didn't know where to stop. Because I could have kept going with this chapter because the chapter flows really well. But I'm like, we can have two short sermons one time. 
<laughs> so we're going to have two short sermons. This is the first one. Um, so the main point. The main point of these verses are to describe the leadership situation in Israel and also Judah. When it comes to the leaders, they seem to be wise and full of glory. But the truth is, they are fading from whatever glory they once held. Not only this, but also the people. Indeed, even the religious leaders are seen to be in a drunken and blind stupor as they mock the truth which comes from God and ignore it completely. Oftentimes, it is possible for leaders to become held in high esteem, whether it be political leaders or religious leaders. We can often rally behind those who agree with us on any given social or religious issue which may come about. In some ways, this is a good thing. Leadership is not evil in and of itself, after all. And God provides us leaders for a purpose, to bring us further into his glory. Yet it is also possible that we are following the wrong leaders. It is possible that our leaders are not so wise nor so great as we make them out to be. Instead of leading us into justice, righteousness, or what is good, they can lead us further and farther away from these things. So it is with the leadership of the time in Isaiah. Those who should have been protecting the people from folly end up leading the people further into it. Through their abuse of physical blessings leading to self-indulgence, we find the glory of the leadership broken and crushed. Instead of producing wisdom and justice and truth with their lips, all they provide instead is vomit. Clearly, we need to be on guard against leadership, which would lead us astray as well. For such leadership will only cause us to become filthy in our own times. It will not lead us into a better tomorrow. It will not lead us to progress. But instead, it will lead to a pit for us to fall into. Such is the way of leadership when it goes astray, and such is the case when we are not careful in what we are being led into. Because that is something which is the case as well. The leadership is responsible for where it is leading the people, and yet the people have individual responsibility to make sure that they are not being led astray. Oftentimes, it is the case that we ignore the repercussions of where we are being led because we implicitly trust our leadership. Yet the truth is, we need to keep our eyes open for all of our sakes. Our human leaders are entirely capable of erring. Unfortunately, we live in a world where sin remains a constant struggle. Our leaders are not perfect. They're capable of carrying the full they're not capable of carrying the full weight which comes with leadership. No, they are just like everyone else, capable of both good and evil, right and wrong, finding truth as well as folly. Thus they are capable of leading in an evil and wrongness and even folly. In our current time, we can see the ramifications of poor leadership. There are those who would fully trust a leader who happens to yes again agree with them yet turn a blind eye to the evils that they may commit. If we were honest, we would say this about our own political parties as well as those we disagree with. Again, both sides are capable of error. Both sides of leadership are capable of creating a further wedge between people. This isn't to say that there is no reason for a wedge. The simple truth is a wedge exists when there are two conflicting points of view. In our nation, that is the case. We have two points of view which cannot truly be reconciled. Yet a good leader of such an institution would seek not to further hammer out the differences, uh, but would seek more. What would they seek? Well, look at the way the king is described in verses 5 and 6. God built his kingdom on justice. 
In having a just society, it is possible to encourage individuals to greater ideals. Without justice, however, the society will ever increasingly be hostile and fall apart. So it is with our society. What do I mean by this? Well, when injustice occurs, it leads to further divides among those who have power and those who do not. Injustice occurs when evil exists. So when we have particular groups of people being sent to prison, while another group of people is let off with a warning for doing the exact same crime, we have injustice. If we have individuals being falsely accused of a crime and being sentenced, we have injustice. When this happens repeatedly over the course of a long time, you have division. And with that division comes different concepts of what is just and what is not. In other words, you end up having two separate worldviews. In our society, we are having two distinct worldviews and understandings of justice, and they are clashing with one another. Some call it left versus right. Others call it nationalist versus globalist. Still others call it conservatives versus liberals. So on one side, you have those who have a clear definition of what justice is, but then you have on the other side another definition of what justice is. One side has one view of reality, and the other side has another view of reality. Ultimately, because of this, neither side is making any headway in discussions because they are literally interpreting their own experiences in two separate ways. The best way to understand, then, what each side is saying requires us to understand their concepts of reality. So the question we must ask is, where did the worldview and its understanding of justice come from? And I'm going to focus right now on the other side because I know where all of you stand. <laughs> I know which side you are on in that capacity um, for the most part. So the question is, where did the other side come from? Let's, let's discuss it so we understand it a little better. The easy answer is Karl Marx. His thought was that there was conflict between those with power and those without power. This was more defined by the different social classes, specifically the wealthy class versus the poor class, the struggle. Thus, the rise of communism sought to eradicate either class. In the United States, the reason why communism never really took firm root, however, is because we have something called a middle class who didn't feel oppressed the way that the poor did in other cultures. This, however, did not end the debate, did it? Instead, a philosopher named Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s thought of neo-Marxism. So what his thought was that instead of it being about rich versus poor, it became more about oppressor, victimizer, or oppressed versus oppressed, victim. The terms changed from the social classes to include race, gender, sexual identity, and religious beliefs. Thus, if there was a minority race... They were the oppressed. They were the victims. If women were not in power, they were the oppressed. They were the victims. If a particular sexual preference was taboo, those individuals were oppressed. They are victims. If there was a minority religious view, they were oppressed. They are victims. The only way to end the oppression then is for them to possess power, those who were once victimized or those who were oppressed. It also means that you are defined by your group rather than anything else. The problem is that this leads to there being a never-ending cycle of oppressed and oppressor. Also, why only have these things under oppression? Likewise, power is not necessarily evil in and of itself. There are those with power who are truly good and utilize their power for good. 
It is those who are evil who abuse power, which makes it bad. Now, all of this would be enough, though. But then you also have this thing called intersectionality. This understanding recognizes that individuals are part of different groups. The more groups you belong to which are oppressed means the more power you should wield. So consider the following two examples that I've heard many times. You have a white woman who is married to her husband. On the other side, you have an African-American woman who is homosexual. Both are women, and therefore both have been oppressed. Yet, the African-American woman is also an African-American. Thus, she belongs to an oppressed race, and since she is a homosexual, she belongs to an oppressed sexual group. Thus, she is more oppressed than the white woman who is married to her husband, and therefore she deserves more power than the person because of that. That's what it means. I think it's pretty clear to see how neo-Marxism is in our culture, but there is more. Consider the postmodern worldview, which in a simple form says that there is no meta-narrative, there's no overarching truth for everybody. Instead, all cultures and all subcultures have their own beliefs only because of the culture or subculture that they're in. Then this complicates things. In other words, they would say that if I am believing anything, it is only because I'm a white male living in the United States. If I had been a female living in Paraguay, I might believe something completely different. Therefore, for them, there is no real truth. There are only beliefs any groups happen to believe. Which group is true? Which group actually understands reality correctly? According to this view, both. They're both true. Now, logically, this couldn't be the case because if I have a belief different from yours, either one of us is right or we're both wrong. We can't both be right if there are two views which are in total opposite to one another. Also, I think the belief that there is no overarching truth is just not true. If any one of us were to go into a grocery store and lift up a bottle of rat poison and say, I believe that this is aspirin, and then you were to proceed to intake that poison, you're going to experience the effects. All because I say something is true doesn't make it so in reality. A good example I heard about this too is bacon. I mean, who doesn't like bacon? And so let's say that you look online, you find all the good health effects of bacon, and it's basically like, you know, it's gluten-free, and it can do all this other stuff. So you just go and make a bacon salad, and that's all you eat is bacon, and you call it a gluten-free salad. Um, yeah, you could do that, but you're going to have the effects of, you know, having a little bit heavier body like mine. So that's just the reality of eating bacon. That's reality. That's how reality works. We find it when we experience it. So there has to be some truth. All because I say it's, you know, it's healthy for me doesn't mean it actually is. So if you couple these things together, it leads to a society which focuses more on groups than individuals. You are defined by your group. It also leads to those groups being in conflict with one another all the time. You can't eradicate the conflict. It finally leads to what we experience today, which is that if you are part of the majority group, you are evil by definition. It doesn't matter if you personally have done anything wrong. In the end, your group defines you, who you are and who you are not, not you as an individual person. So it is, this is a different worldview than the view which is understand, but understood by Christians. It is also, because of this, it seems impossible to communicate with those on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. Because what you would consider hypocrisy, they consider good. 
When individuals riot for the purpose of the oppressed, it is good because it is going against the power of the day. Thus, we live in a completely different reality than those on the other side, and because of this, it's almost impossible to agree. It seems clear as to what has happened to our society, though. The problem is, our leadership has failed us. Where have our leaders been who have taught us what is happening around us? We seem to lack an Abraham Lincoln, who can lead us to a time, through a time of frustration, capable of providing wisdom to us in our time of confusion. Indeed, where have the leaders gone who can help us understand why it is that we're having so much conflict? Meanwhile, our religious leaders are in the same boat as our political ones. For the last few decades, many in our religious circles have actually fallen prey to similar thoughts and ideals. Instead of providing wisdom and truth, many have turned aside for profit, for gains, for their own form of power and prestige. As such, when a separate worldview enters into our time and place, it should be our leaders who stand against it and provide an answer to that worldview that we can all understand. Yet instead of providing us a response, they have produced vomit. Instead of helping us to understand the differences around us and to be able to both critique and provide a response to the differences, many have succumbed to the alternatives, understanding of the world, culture, and society. So many now in the Christian faith believe that by adopting these understandings, this truly neo-Marxist understanding, the church would do better. Does it though? One would say that the above understandings that we've discussed today, they do not lead to unity, but further disunity. The neo-Marxists and postmodern views of the world utterly destroy the human person as an individual. The concepts do not smell of justice, but power and power alone. It seems more reasonable to conclude that when we adopt these things, we are not adopting a covenant with justice, truth, or life, but instead adopting a covenant with Sheol, which is what we'll discuss next week. So it is our responsibility to understand the times and to know what it is that the world is proclaiming. It falls on each of us to be looking over our leadership to see if they are leading us in the right way or if they are leading us into further chaos. To not be blind leading the blind, nor the blind being led by the blind. I told you this is going to be a short sermon, so... Um, I think that this leads us to, okay, what the Christian worldview is, which is this. And as you notice, it's very different than the postmodern worldview where there's no truth. It's very different than the neo-Marxist view where it's all about victimhood and power. It's very different than either of those. It's actually found right here where we talk about every week, this is what we believe as Christians. And it begins with our origins. We are not here by time plus matter plus chance. We are here because God created humanity to bear his image. And because of that, we have dignity and sanctity and worth to life. It is why we are able to reason and love and have fellowship with one another. And guess what? All humanity is in the same boat with this. There is not one group that is better or more prone to have the image of God on them. All humans have the image of God. Now the problem that happens is sin. Like we see in this, where leadership goes awry and it causes us to be turning astray. Leads us to further uh, disunity, a lack of understanding, no wisdom. 
and sinfulness. And when we seek sinfulness, it causes those divides among us. And those divisions lead to further chaos and misery and contempt and hatred toward one another. It doesn't shock me that neo-Marxism came about. It doesn't shock me that Marxism came about. It doesn't shock me that these things came about because evil exists and there's going to be a response to that evil if the Christian doesn't provide a good response. And so it is, though, we have to deal with the fact that there is a fall. Evil exists. It exists in each one of us. That there is such a thing as racism. There is such a thing as police brutality. There is such a thing as people being hurt and hindered. There is such a thing as lies and stealing And there is such a thing as right and wrong. If right and wrong exists, then we have a problem because all of us have failed. Now again, what have I said? All of us have failed, not one particular group. It goes against the neo-Marxists. But then that leads to the problem or the the question, how can we we be redeemed? How can we be fixed if we all fail? If every individual person within each of our individual groups is a failure, how can we be redeemed? If we have all sinned and God is just, we deserve judgment just like the people deserve judgment. The question is, how do we find redemption? Well, in Isaiah, we talk about it. God himself is our king. And when we turn to God as our king, we turn to Jesus Christ, who is his savior, And he saves us from our our sins as people. And that in his life, death, and resurrection in time, space, history, and flesh, we find redemption from our sins, from our fallenness. And we can then be turned toward God in righteousness and justice and what is good. And guess what? That's not for any particular people group. That's for all people. You see, what's interesting about it is that Christianity provides the best possible unity among people of different races and genders because we're all in the same boat. And when we proclaim that to the world, we can find unity. It's why you can go into the African bush right now and you can find Christians who believe in Jesus just like you and you can rejoice with them. It's a worldview which truly does encapsulate all the world. It's a redemption that takes the whole frame of reality And guess what? It's just like Isaiah says. It's simple. There's nothing complex about this. But when you open the door into Christianity, the threshold, when you get into it, it's more magnificent and it goes deeper and wider than you could ever imagine. It's beyond power. It goes to justice itself, mercy, love, redemption for sin. And so when it comes to the Christian worldview and contrast with all the worldviews and all the things we're hearing from society, we should be very thankful that God has given us what he has given us, which is the truth. A truth which goes far beyond what other people are telling us. And it touches deep into our societies to redeem us. And where does it lead? It leads to glory. It leads to justice. It leads to righteousness. It leads to us wanting to make sure that our societies are being just and righteous and turning away from injustices. That we aren't just picking and choosing who we want justice to apply to, but we want it to apply to everyone. Why? Because we know justice is good and it comes from God. So as we continue forward, and as we continue further with what Isaiah is saying, let us continue to seek out leaders who understand these things. 
and who don't just purposefully divide for the sake of division, but who seek to bring truth into the reality that we're facing. We might not be able to always get along. There's always going to be conflict when you have these two worldviews. But if we understand the worldview that they're coming from, we can criticize it, and we can hopefully say this is more accurate to reality, what we have. If we just hear what they're saying and reject it, are we really providing a good response? That's the question. We have to know where they're coming from in order to respond appropriately. So, with Isaiah, let us go and be led into further goodness. Let us be led into the glory of God and let us seek to understand one another, but also that doesn't mean agreeing per se, but instead providing light into darkness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us wisdom and knowledge in the midst of so much chaos and turmoil around us, that we would not be hindered by what it is that we are experiencing, all the evils in the world, but the, Lord, that we would seek to um, end these evils in our society, that we would seek true justice, that we would know what justice is, not based on power, but based upon you. Because it's from you, Lord, that justice truly comes. It's from you that we are able to understand what goodness and what is right is. And so, Lord, let our foundation be on you. Let us seek to glory and honor only in you. And let us seek to go ever and onward into faith, knowing that you will lead us all the way. As your son has told us, we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.